today on Summit Life, a wake-up call from Pastor J.D. Greer. Peter says, wake up, be sober, because eternity is real and it's close. Stop sinning. You know better now. There's a limited amount of time you got, and eternity will be here before you know it. Start living now like you will have want yourself to have lived when you're there. Welcome to Summit Life with J.D. Greer. I'm Molly Vitovich. Thankfully, the battle over sin was decisively won 2,000 years ago on the cross. So then the question becomes, why do we still struggle with sin today? And what tools has God given us to break free? Today, Pastor J.D. arms us for the ongoing fight against sin as he concludes our study in 1 Peter called, I Am an Alien. If you'd like to listen to the series again or catch up on previous messages, you'll find them all at jdgreer.com. Now here's Pastor J.D. Three things he tells you, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, three things he tells you are the reasons you are to stop sinning. He said three things to remember. First of all, they are remember the resurrection. Number two, remember eternity. And then number three, remember that both of these things are imminent. Begin there with number one, remember the resurrection. Chapter four, verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you should arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Christ suffered to the point of crucifixion. There was a point in Christ's ministry toward the end where it looked like everything had gone wrong. It looked like the bad guys had won. It looked like God was totally out of control. But we know, Peter says, on the other side of the resurrection, that just when it seemed that God was most out of control was the time that God was doing his greatest work. So he says to these people, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because many of you are also in a time where it seems like life is out of control, where it seems like God is not on the throne, and where it seems like the bad guys are winning. And I want you to think like Christ thought because Christ saw through the dark hour to the resurrection and saw that God was in control. And you gotta learn to think like that. What Peter's saying is essentially, you arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had because if you look at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, two things you ought to know about your life. One, you're gonna suffer like he did. Number two, God has the last word. So he goes on, verse two, look at this. Verse two, he says, so as to live for the rest of your, of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but now for the will of God. For the time has passed, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, which, li- which is living in sensuality. Passions, passions means craving. It's a Greek word that means epithumia. Epithumia means a craving for something. Uh, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter is talking to people that this used to be their lifestyle. This used to be some of your lifestyle. And he says, now that you no longer join them in this, they are surprised and they malign you because they can't understand why you wouldn't do those things anymore. Peter goes on, verse five, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's like, they don't have the last word. God has the last word. You keep your eyes on that because that's what fueled Christ in the midst of the cross. God has the last word. He goes on, well, well, here's number two, by the way. Remember eternity. This is verse five and six. Remember eternity. Your belief in the resurrection should cause you to live in a way 
to do things with your money that is baffling to people. Peter goes on to develop this. Look at this, verse six. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that they're judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What he is saying is this, listen. The gospel was preached to people who are now dead when they were alive. The gospel was preached to them when they were alive, but they're dead now. And many of them died, some of them in extreme poverty and in the midst of persecution, just like Jesus died, but now they live in the resurrection like God does. He's like, don't you think the people that believed the gospel then and are living in eternity now, don't you think they're glad that they chose to follow Jesus and not follow sin? Fast forward your life 100 years and live from that vantage point. What would you wish you had done with your life? What would you wish you had done with your money? What would you wish you had decided about Jesus? And start to think that way. Remember eternity. In verse seven, he gives you a third motivation to stop sinning. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. All right, number three, remember that both those things, the resurrection and eternity, both of them are imminent. All right, two things that are imminent. Number one, your death, you don't know when you're gonna die. For some of you, it may be 60 years from now. For some of you, it might be this afternoon. But there's another thing that he's saying here, and that is the return of Christ is imminent. The end is near. So you ought to live like people who expect to see Jesus any minute. So even though we don't know if it's now or 2,000 years from now, he says live like you could see him at any moment because it might be today. The end is near. You just don't know. What Peter is telling them is you are to live like Jesus could come back at any moment because he might. You have to maintain this posture of readiness because it's only when you maintain that posture that you are thinking about life rightly. See how it says be sober Here's the irony of this passage. It is living in light of the imminence of the yin that makes you live soberly. And so then it'll keep your priorities straight. The irony is we always think of people who think the end is near as like crazy people, right? You think of some dude in a sandwich board walking around the campus of NC State you know, yelling the end is near and you think he's lost his mind. Now, chances are he has lost his mind. But he's saying that it is people who understand that Jesus' eternity is imminent they're the only ones who ever get their priorities straight. They're the only ones who live soberly. If Jesus were coming back tonight, how would that change how you live today? If the knowledge that Jesus was coming back tonight would cause any change in your life, then you are not living soberly. You are drunk right now on the world's distractions. And Peter says, wake up, be sober, because eternity is real and it's close. Stop sinning. Don't be drunk. Don't be distracted. Because that time has passed. You know better now. There's a limited amount of time you got, and eternity will be here before you know it. Start living now like you will have want yourself to have lived when you're there. If the gospel is true, it is the weightiest reality in the world. It means that you will stand before God. Nothing you've done except what you've done for him, for his glory, in his name will matter. It means that there is a destination for every person in the world, heaven or hell, and you and I have got one shot to preach the gospel to them. The gospel, belief in the gospel and the resurrection changes everything. And so Peter tells them in seven verses a predictable message, but he says, stop sinning. Open your eyes to the cross and the resurrection. And if it's true, that should change everything in your life. If Jesus died and rose again, that 
changes everything. Stop sinning. Then Peter shifts into part two of his message, which is much shorter than part one. It's only four and a half verses. He says, stop sinning and start leveraging your life for the glory of God. So it's not just stop something. He wants you to start something. Look at this. Pick up the middle of verse seven. Let's keep moving in this. Verse seven. Um, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Look at this phrase. For the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. As God's people, you have a role that you are to play on earth now. You remember I told you a few weeks ago that one of Peter's favorite images for the people of God is a kingdom of priests? Remember when I said the kingdom of priests, a priest is somebody who represents somebody else to God. You stand in the gap and you plead on behalf of this person over here to God. And the church is a kingdom of priests. Not a few of us, but all of us. And I introduced a concept to you called intercessory faith, which is what we teach at the Summit Church, which is that you and I are placed in families in dormitories, at workplaces, in our society, to believe in God's willingness to save that society and to ask on their behalf. Jesus loves to turn sinners to himself. Jesus loves to change societies. But Jesus only does that through a kingdom of priests. The image I gave you to think about was I said, go through the Gospels and look at the the very small number of miracles that begin with with Jesus going into a place and then just picking out somebody by his choice and saying, you, I'm gonna heal you. That happens every once in a while. You know, Zacchaeus, hey, short little dude, I'm coming to your house. That happens from time to time. But usually what happens is Jesus is going one direction and somebody comes and grabs hold of him on behalf of somebody else and takes this power and this compassion of Jesus and directs it toward this other person. And I explained to you, that's our role is you and I are in the place of a priest who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, this family needs your power. The reason that God is not working in your family has nothing to do with any lack of compassion in Jesus' heart for your family and nothing to do with any lack of ability. It has everything to do with that, the fact that there's not a priest in there asking God to do what God said God would do. Verse eight, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Why above all? Why would he say that's above all? And what does it mean to cover a multitude of sins? That doesn't mean, by the way, hides sins, because that would be out of the context of this passage. Cover here means takes it away. What he's saying is, watch, kindness and love for others is the single greatest power to convincing people of the truth of Christianity. The kindness and love we display, generosity toward one another on display, is the ultimate power that God uses to change cynical hearts to know him. Jesus said that, right? John 13, 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples by, what comes after that? By by your carefully articulated explanations of the resurrection and why only the resurrection of Jesus could explain the phenomena of the first century. No, all right? I mean, that has its place, but what really changes the cynical heart is inexplicable love on display in the church and generosity. That's the secret of the church nobody gets. The secret of the church is that the power to change a cynical heart is in inexplicable generosity on display. Romans 2.4 says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is our kindness to one another that leads the world to repentance. He keeps going, watch this. He says it again, verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, what he means is we're extravagantly generous to one another And that's what ends up waking up the world. 
My wife and I love, Veronica and I, we love to give money to the Christmas missions offering, to give it away to poor people and to um, people around the world who need to hear the gospel. But my wife and I realize, in fact, we realize that this Christmas, that we're gonna do that, we do it every year, but we're like, you know, there's another group that we're even more committed to, and that is the people in the Summit Church who have needs. Because it is them that are to, we are to take care of them. It's not that I'm doing that instead of giving to evangelism. Get this, giving to the needs that are right here in our church is evangelism. Because Jesus said, this is how the community will know that you belong to me. Acts 2, I love this. Acts 2 said that they shared everything in common and there was no need. And then Acts 4 says that there was not a single poor person in the early church because they all shared everything. And then it says this, and a great sense of fear and awe came upon every soul and they had favor with all the people and then God added to their number daily those that were being saved. You wanna you know what that means? The greatest evangelistic tool that we have for a cynical community is just a healthy church that loves and takes care. When there are no needs in the Summit Church because every one of our congregation members is meeting the needs when they can of somebody else, it's, listen, it's not even that we'll have to send missionaries into our community. The presence of a healthy local church is itself the missionary. That is how we will wake our community up when there are no needs. So yes, give extravagantly to the Christmas missions offering. Let's give our money away to take it around the world. But even more importantly, this is our family. This is our family. And when there are needs in our family, we take care of those needs and we pour it out, show hospitality to each other without grumbling. And just pour out your life because when the church is the church, it's the beauty of Christ, and it becomes attractive and repulsive, but retractive to that community. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, they ought to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I, 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 I gotta be disciplined. I cannot go off on each of these. Focus. God's varied grace. Here, here's what that means. God's grace to the earth happens in various instruments. We always think of like God in heaven, like wanting to do work on the earth and like zapping it with his late, so we pray, God, fix this. And God's like, and he sends down his power, you know, in a microwave beam or the angels carry it down. That's not how God works usually, right? Paul uses the instrument of the body, okay? This is what Peter's getting at here too, a body. All right, so think of the analogy of the body, you with me? So you got JD's body up here. JD's body has an itch on the left elbow right here. So left elbow sends up a little message, you know, up to the brain and says, I itch, fix me, all right? So what does my brain do? Does my brain send down magical brain juice down and like take care of the itch? No, my brain sends a message to Mr. Right Fingers and tells him to go alleviate the itch of brother elbow. So, you know, fingers go over there, scratch the elbow, the elbow is satisfied and the right fingers are gratified, okay? That's how the body works. In the same way, each of you has received this deposit of grace, that's how God works on the earth. That's how God works. Which is why, if you're not connected to a church, you're disconnected from the power of God. Somebody sits in my office and complains about being disconnected from God and they're disconnected from the church. I don't feel sorry for him. That's like you know, refusing to eat and then complaining that you're hungry. It's like, well, that's how, I mean, that's how you get connected to God. Each of you, each of you means that God has given a gift to all of you and that you are to exercise this power in the church. He goes on, whoever speaks, let it be as the oracles of God. You're speaking, my speaking that I'm doing to you right now is not a talent I have. 
It's not something I do because I can make a living on it because, hey, I'm pretty good at it and I could probably make, make a career on it. No, I take what I do very seriously because I am the mouthpiece of God. Don't hear that, listen, and you can take that the wrong way. I'm not saying I can't be wrong, but I'm saying that when I speak, I speak as one who studies the oracles of God and I give them to you. This is God speaking through you. I don't even try to, it's not even when I prepare a message, yeah, I try to study the text and get it exactly right, but there's something else I'm doing, and that is I'm saying, God, I know this is your word, but I wanna know what your word is saying to these people this week. And that's why sometimes I'll be like, you know what, there's somebody here that needs this because God is putting this on my heart. Yeah, it's the word of God, but it's also becoming the word of God to you. And I'm preaching as one who is preaching the oracles of God. I do it, it's very weighty to me. By the way, do you notice that word whoever? That's a very interesting word, whoever. Because it means it's not just the pastor. He didn't say pastor speak the oracles of God. He said you speak the oracles of God. Is we feel like there's one or two of us that speak the oracles of God and all of you listen to the oracles of God. Peter says whoever. Because he means that the whole church, a church is a church when its people are speaking the words of God to each other. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we do small groups. Because in small groups, you have the place to speak the words of God to each other. 1 Corinthians 14.25, jot that reference down and study it in your small group. 1 Corinthians 14.25 says that when a church is a church, an unbeliever comes in, you ever seen this? An unbeliever comes in, the secrets of his heart are exposed, and he falls down on his face and says, surely God is among you because, not the pastor preaches an awesome sermon, but because everybody is preaching the word of God to him. What that means is this church ought to be characterized by people who speak the word of God to each other. I'm not talking about good advice. I'm talking about, watch, when the spirit of God puts the word of God in your heart to speak to people to do the work of God in their heart. There are times that people come up to me and they will say something like, JD, I've been praying for you. And as I was praying for you, I just felt like the spirit of God put this on my heart. You know, God wants me to tell you that you are not forgotten. He knows what you're going through right now. He is working this for your good. You are blessed. You are highly favored. God has got a call in your life and God is working this out. And God told me to tell you this. Now, they do it humbly. They're not claiming to be some weirdo, but they're just saying the word of God is alive in my heart and I'm speaking it to you. You know what church is, watch, the spirit of God using the people of God to speak the word of God to accomplish the work of God. That's what a church is. The people of God, through the Spirit of God, speaking the Word of God to each other to accomplish the work of God. It's, it's whoever, it's all of us, preaching the Word of God that God puts on our hearts to one another because God uses that to do His work. Next phrase, you see what it says? It says, whoever serves, let him serve by the strength that God supplies. In the same way, there are some spiritual gifts that we serve one another, and Jesus actually serves and touches somebody through us. I was thinking about how Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and thinking how awesome that was and what they probably felt like when that happened and realizing that when people serve me in the body of Christ in Jesus' name, I get the same message from Jesus through them where Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the universe and I'm serving you. Your service to others, your service to this body is not random. It is. It is God doing his work, touching the world through you in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter says the church is this body where people serve like Jesus in the power of Jesus for the glory of Jesus because to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. He says, look, God is the one who when you had no hope, 
He came and died on a cross and rescued you and raised from the dead. He conquered what you could never conquer. So now those of us who live should no longer live for our glory and our benefit. We ought to leverage. We ought to stop sinning and start leveraging our talent, leveraging our money, leveraging everything for the glory of the one who died to save us. That's the whole theme of 1 Peter. He's like, hey, are, are you in pain? Are you in pain? Leverage your pain to bring glory to Jesus. Are you in prosperity? Has God given you a lot? Leverage that prosperity to bring glory to Jesus. If you understand the gospel, that Jesus saved you when you had no hope, that he resurrected and overcame an enemy you could never overcome, then of course you won't live the rest of your life bringing glory to yourself or pouring it back on yourself. You'll do it for the glory of the one who did for you what you could not do for yourself. To him belong glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's how Peter ends this. So that's your point. That's what he says to you. Are you leveraging your life to bring glory to Jesus? I told our, our staff this this week. I said, imagine, imagine you're at a wedding and uh, you're watching the groom. He's up there, you know. The moment comes, the organ plays, back doors fly open, there stands the beautiful bride. And you're watching this guy and his best man standing right here. And as that bride comes down the aisle, right, you notice the best man is making eyes at the bride, you know, kind of raising his eyebrows, winking at her, making flirtatious ovations at this bride. Now imagine how ridiculous and how even disgusting that is. That here's a best man trying to direct her attention away from the groom onto himself. I told our staff, I was like, that's the pastor or the worship pastor who is concerned more with what people are thinking about him or her than they are about directing people to Jesus. I, I, want, I want the attention of the bride on me. Every one of you has been given a certain amount. And if you understand the gospel, you will direct all of it to the glory of Jesus because he died for you. And God forbid that you and I take one ounce of the talent, the, 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 the opportunity, the resources, and bring glory to ourselves and create kingdoms for ourselves when Peter says, no, 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 this is, if the, resurrect, the gospel and the resurrection are true, this is all about him. So start living this way. Peter really believes in the resurrection. You notice this? I've told you before that evangelical Christians, which is people like us, we tend to treat the resurrection like a cool thing that happened. We don't really know what to do with it, except, so we celebrate it once a year on Easter. Hey, we're like, hey, isn't it good that Jesus died, on, you know, that he rose again? Because I guess that proves we're right and everybody else is wrong. And so like, hey, we serve a risen Savior. Muhammad's dead, Buddha's dead, but our Savior's living. And so we you know, celebrate on one Sunday and eat chocolate hollow bunnies. That's kind of the resurrection for us. Peter doesn't think the resurrection is one thing to celebrate one time to congratulate you that you're right. Peter says the resurrection changes how you see everything. If I could subtitle this epistle, I would call it the epistle of the resurrection. First Peter, the epistle of the resurrection, how to see your whole life through the lens of what it means that Jesus really rose from the dead. So that's my question for you. Do you believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead? And if so, has it transformed your life? Pastor J.D. concludes our study in 1 Peter called I'm an Alien on Summit Life. If you missed any part of the series, you can find the entire study at jdgreer.com. 
You'll never see one of JD's sermons behind a paywall, but that's only possible because people like you make voluntary contributions. So let me invite you today to become a gospel partner and join us in our mission to reach the world with the gospel. When you give today, we'll say thanks by sending you a specially created resource that accompanies our year-long teaching series through Romans that we jump back into next week on the program. It's volume two of a three-part Bible study through the book of Romans. Ask for Romans volume two when you give today by calling 866-335-5220. That's 866-335-5220. Or you can request the book online at jdgreer.com. While you're on our website, be sure to sign up for our email list. You'll get ministry updates, an immediate free downloadable resource, and Pastor JD's latest blog post delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up when you go to jdgreer.com. I'm Molly Vitovich. Well, fellow aliens, we've had a great week of teaching together. I hope you have a restful weekend and will join us again Monday when we jump back into our series through the Book of Romans. We'll see you next week on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Today's program was produced and sponsored by J.D. Greer Ministries.